You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we jump into this week's interview, I just want to remind you once again about our annual audience survey. As you know, Revision Path has been around since 2013. That's seven years, which is a really long time when it comes to podcasting. And you know, in these seven years, we've really ended up becoming a platform to showcase black designers and developers and digital creatives from all over the world. And we want to know how can we make this better for you? How can we make revision path better and in order for us to do that we need your input so we can grow and sustain ourselves in this really odd landscape that is design media and of course we want to keep giving you more of these really great conversations that you just won't find anywhere else so to help us out we've put together a survey you can head over to revisionpath.com forward slash survey to fill that out takes about five minutes or so to do And we will choose one lucky person that fills out the survey to win a $250 Amazon.com gift card. Again, that survey is at revisionpath.com forward slash survey. The survey is going to be up until the end of the month, May 31st. I just want to thank you again so much for listening. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your feedback. Now, let's talk about our sponsors for Revision Path, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Randall Parrish, an art director at Sonos in Santa Barbara, California. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hello there, I'm Randall Parrish. I'm an art director at Sonos. I work on the interactive experience team, which basically controls the mobile design application for all Sonos speaker systems. Okay. Now, for starters, I know you're you're new there. You've been there, what, like a month, two months now? <laughs> I've been here about five weeks. So oh, five weeks. Took, I took a one-way ticket on March 9th, uh, moving 3,000 miles away from everything I've ever known, and I was in the office for about four days before the whole city shut down. Wow. Well, first of all, congratulations on the new gig. I know this is probably a, a very unprecedented time to start a new job, so like, how are you holding up? You know, it's been really interesting, because it's like, <laughs> when I thought about just like moving to California, I remember visiting in January, and... You know, Santa Barbara is just this like this amazing simulation of just perfection. It's like this beautiful beach town where there's flowers everywhere. There's wineries and restaurants. And of course, the second I get there, all I can do is just unpack really slowly and just take Zoom calls from my couch. So in one sense, it's like it's amazing because like you still know there's all this amazing potential out there. But on the other end, you're just like, oh, why me? Why now? But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm still very optimistic because it's like. You know, like I'm still connected with the coworkers. Everyone's been very friendly and, you know, everyone's just understands that this is not what anyone kind of imagined for themselves this month or this year at all. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm still just excited because I just helps me just kind of throw myself into the unpacking and the work and just being acquainted. And then I get to kind of make a bit of an itinerary for later. So now I feel a little less guilt about holding still on the weekends. Hmm. And you were only in the office for four days, like not even a full yeah. work week. Not even a full week. Technically, I was like breaking in for like another week, but I wasn't supposed to because I didn't have Wi-Fi at the time because uh-huh. all services are a little slower than they used to be. So there was a brief week where I had this like just gigantic industrial thunderdome to myself where I was the only person in there just playing with all the hardware <laughs> really loudly. But the following week, everything was just straight up shut down. It was starting to become like a bit of a risk between like security and delivery people and regular employees. 
Mm-hmm. So I was there for you know, four, four real days before I was just completely shut out and just housebound. So you mentioned that you work on the on the app experience of Sonos. So I know most people know Sonos as the actual physical speakers. You have the little Play 1s. You have mm-hmm. the Play 3, which is kind of a larger one. The Play 5 is the huge one. You've got... And I say this because I have them in my apartment, but like you have the the play base and you have the sub and you got the sound bar. Like there's a bunch of different hardware components that go onto it and they're all tied together with this mobile app. So mm-hmm. talk to me about like what your day consists of, because it sounds like you would possibly have to interface with a lot of hardware, but unfortunately you can't because you're not in the office. <laughs> so let me kind of explain, like kind of further kind of enumerate on what my title kind of means in relation to kind of the rest of the team. So as of right now, I believe we are about 61 designers or so. We're quite a few. Um, I've never worked in a place that was internal, first of all. And this is like, I've never seen quite just so many kind of different people with different ownerships of different aspects of the product. So as art director, I'm kind of in this this role where my role is supposed to be about owning the design system symphony. So if you know kind of design systems, you know, like that's a little old hat, but it's still like a thing that's um kind of not a bit new and a bit up and coming and still trying to sort of be just kind of regulated within the, the context of Sonos. So kind of the idea for my role is to be this very connective tissue between a lot of other teams. So we have a different team that handles setup or a different team that handles kind of different aspects or kind of like sub branches of the app. But people who are also handling some of those sub branches also work on purely hardware or other maybe non-software angles of the app as well. So my job is to sort of be this person who's like understanding what are the needs that one that the app needs to do. Two, how are other teams using the core design system so we have consistency across that? Three, I'm going to also ask, what are you all missing? Like, what do you all need me to ingest into the system and also maintain and spit back out? And how can we kind of work together to also have a thing where we can kind of cross between all these 60 designers? And as well as while we're doing that, I'm also trying to be a connective tissue to marketing. So we're asking kind of broad questions like, how can we make, you know, the app feel a bit more like the .com? How can we make the .com feel more like the app? How can we basically find consistency inside of brand voice and tonality kind of mm-hmm. across these different sorts of channels? Because this is sort of a new undertaking for Sonos. Like, right now we're in this, like, really kind of amazing renaissance where we've just been on a great kind of like upward kind of hiring tilt. And that's mostly because I think we uh, like a lot of organizations in the last like four to five years, I would say have like really started to just really amp up just how seriously they're taking design. I think design is starting to really get this kind of seat at the table. People are starting to understand kind of the value and kind of the ROI on design. So mm-hmm. we're seeing all these kind of different companies who you would have thought were very design centric, right? Like Sonos, but you know, hung its hat on being this almost like the Apple of speakers, right? But in terms of software, they were, you know, it's, um, I think I can kind of easily say that maybe they weren't kind of as competitive as they should have been at the time. Oh, oh no, the, the Sonos <laughs> app used to be trash. It was oh, yeah. really bad. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was it was, super, it was super bad, but the hardware was amazing, so you kind of forgave it, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the speaker sounds so good, you were like, I don't care how bad this app is, it sounds so good. Like <laughs> that's true, that's true. And uh, I remember it was funny. I remember when I interviewed, I outright said, I said I didn't think the Play One was a good buy until AirPlay was added, and mm. they gave me a fun stat. Turns out, significantly less people use AirPlay than you might think. Um, I was very blown away by the metric. I, I can got. see that. I can see less that. I thought. <laughs> Like right now, like I have in the living room, I've got two play ones and a play bass. And so I have them just connected as a, like a surround sound thing, which is mostly how I use it, like for gaming. So I can get the really good sound when I'm playing PlayStation or whatever, which is great. I love it for that. And maybe this is just me. I rarely actually play music on my Sonos speakers, but I think it's because I have them hooked up to the television. Now, before I did that and I connected with the play bass, I had, I think I had one in the living room, no, one in the living room and one in the bedroom. And I would use the app to like play music to it. Like I wish this is before, well, I think Chromecast was out around this time, but like the ability to like cast to a speaker or something like that, which Google kind of lets you do. Like mm-hmm. Google Play kind of lets you cast two Sono speakers. I don't know how that all works out. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, but it didn't used to be such a great harmonious experience so Mm -hmm. that's interesting to to kind of hear that i was just thinking about just like all like these like all these fun little things i know about just like kind of relations between like you know all these different things like uh, sort of like right now exists in this kind of switzerland kind of state so you're like the google doesn't work that well oh boy have we got tails but yeah yeah because a lot of what we do is like a lot of what we pride ourselves on is kind of being this like 
this amazing connective tissue between hundreds of services. Now, mm-hmm. some of those are like, you know, the large partners like Amazon and Google and uh, Apple, but we also have like all those like small time partners. So it's always interesting when like, there's moments where like a big time partner has like maybe an integration or something that isn't always working quite the way you would expect. And there's, there are all sorts of just wild kind of hijinks and reasons for why something is or isn't a certain way, but it's not always up to us. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, how did you first get started at Sonos? So like first week or how did I get discovered? Oh, I guess how I got discovered. So yeah, let me kind of like really wind it back a bit. So I want to say it was like maybe August of last year, I got like a ping from a recruiter. I never actually had applied to them. So initially I got a call about a kind of like a creative director of mobile apps kind of job from them. And I remember like when I got the email, they were just like, oh, how do you feel about relocation? And I grew up in North Virginia. I've lived in like, you know, North, like the like the Arlington, D.C. kind of metro area my entire life. And I remember I was just like, well, you kind of caught me at this like kind of very interesting kind of apex moment in my life. I was still like very kind of like fresh off of a breakup. Like it was a very wild, just tumultuous time in my life because I mm-hmm. thought I had this sort of plan in my life for what I thought that my following years were going to be. And I get this call and I'm just like, huh. You know, like you're catching me at a rare, a rare time in my life. I this is suddenly something that suddenly seems on the table. Like if I had gotten this call six months a year ago, I would have been like, "Oh, sorry, I can't do." It. I would have let go straight to voicemail. But something, but the timing was just impeccable for just you know making me really kind of take it seriously. The other fun part was like when I got the call, I already had four play ones in the house, so uh-huh. it wasn't like I didn't necessarily need coaxing that the hardware was any good or like you know it was like actually worth selling or being engaged in. The other part was like, I was also just asking myself, okay, like, what do I really want to work on? You know, like I come from an agency background. I've done that for about the last like eight years straight. And, you know, an an agency is like half of the fun was you get to reset your mind pretty often. You get to try a lot of different things. You get to reset pretty frequently. But I asked myself if I, you don't always get to choose the topic and you're, you're not guaranteed to love whatever project you're on next. And what if I could actually choose the thing that I could actually fall in love with, you know? And what if I could do this in this new shiny place just kind of do not quite a reset but just like a natural continuation in this kind of very just like amazing brave intricate way you know mm-hmm. so yeah so i got that call knocks and just kind of like a little kind of upper from there i could tell you some like interview highlights and things like that but yeah that's kind of like kind of the um the initial seed i mean the fact that they sought you out is amazing that's great mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean clearly clearly you were doing something worth you know that was worthy of them <laughs> seeking you out in that way I do pride myself because like back when I left DC, I was in like the top like 21 designers there, like on like the trending metrics. I was, I think I had more followers than like the Capital One design team. I love you, Capital One. Um, I have your cards. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So it was just funny because like I think it was, Dribble is such like a funny, just interesting way to like generate traffic and just be seen in a city that's as, I don't want to say small, but like the size that DC is. Like out in LA, I feel like I would have never gotten half the opportunities because I think the the density is so much higher. But in DC, I think it's like the just the right market for just like a mid size kind of targeting person like me to like kind of get picked up. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Symphony, the design system at Sonos. Outside of that, are there other like projects that you're working on, or is that the main thing? Right now, that's the main thing, mostly because there's still some other things that I might kind of like kind of target. There's a few things that have been kind of shifted around. Priorities are still being readjusted all the time. But owning Symphony is kind of like expected to be kind of like a very kind of large kind of major undertaking, yeah. mostly because it touches so many aspects of what other teams are doing. So, for example, it's like we have like a team that like operates on setup, or we have other teams that own like kind of like other kind of areas of the app. Anytime that they have like a new feature that they want to do, it has to still be ingested somewhere, still has to work within the system, and we still have to make sure that we aren't creating so much bloat within the system that, you know, we just have a million just different, unique, one-off pieces everywhere. So a lot of that is just about, a little bit's about managing, but it's also about trying to kind of meet in the middle a little bit. So I kind of see it as this kind of great opportunity to kind of be a little bit of a negotiator between people. And another kind of reason why I think I was kind of chosen for the job or why I kind of stuck out was they really like kind of like, I don't kind of come looking at design system from a pure product design background. Mm-hmm. A lot of my background is usually like um, when I when I was at Sapient, what I did was I worked on what was called like the like the digital innovation pod. So basically what we did, would do is we were like often doing like either pitch work or kind of like much more kind of like pie in the sky type like idea generation for these big billion dollar brands. And what that kind of gave me the ability to do like in addition with my time at WDG was getting really good at just trying to figure out like where to like kind of like let go of the e-break, where to kind of really kind of push something 
in a kind of visual design type way while also still being held to like the same rules as something that still had gone through rigorous UX. So I would still be working on teams to make sure that, oh, a financial analyst agreed that this is all sensible, this makes sense. And also like my associate creative director on UX also agreed, okay, this makes sense. This is like a good use case or a good scenario that we would present if we were trying to ship. But also while doing this instead of a sort of a tight bubble about just making it as unique and different as possible as well to be kind of unlike the rest of like these other big billion dollar players in the market. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to figure out how to basically take marketing design type sensibilities and add them to a very product focused company and kind of meet in the middle to figure out where we can kind of like find that kind of that happy center ground between the two. Mm-hmm. And, you know, before Sonos, you were an art director at Publicis Sapiens. So you already kind of had this experience of working with these kind of big million dollar, multi-million dollar brands. But talk to me about kind of what your your agency experience was like. Mm-hmm. I initially got started at this uh, this uh, very small shop in Old Town Alexandria, now uh, Arlington, WDG. So I was there for five years. It was my first like real adult job out of college. Well, I interned and became designer, but it was like I, <laughs> they just couldn't shake me off. And I feel like I got there kind of like this like very kind of fortuitous time. When I got there, it was just like they were very young, very kind of startupy. Like there was like less than twenty people. You know, it was like a wear your pajamas to work type place. And I think I I got in there like at a time where they were still very young and still finding themselves. And year over year, we all found ourselves in this kind of more mature way year over year. So like we were you know just doing like very very small scale marketing sites. And every single year, like we had a great way of just having new challenges approach. So bigger kind of fish would call. So people like Red Cross were calling or people like the Folger Shakespeare Library were calling or people like the American Enterprise Institute, like just bigger, just like like names that you might actually see or catch on TV or just like very notable in the DC area were, were creeping up. These kind of like triple A for the region type projects came in. And as I started to kind of like, you know, go from just, just being in a sort of assistive role to being someone who could kind of take ownership and really run something from kind of conception to deployment. That's mm-hmm. what I think was like the, the best part about my time at WDG was I don't think that I would have been as far like I could have done anything that I'm doing today if I hadn't done my time there. And I think it's because I think like if you go somewhere small, I was one of three designers, by the way. That's why I mean when I say small in terms of this sense, there's a very, very small, tight design team. It was just me, my career director, Dario Tadic, and uh, my counterpart, Christina Lakeway. And it basically meant that just about anything that came through would eventually filter through me. So it meant I had to have a feeling or an answer to so many more just problems in my day to day than I think I would have had if I had gone to a very large established like product company or a much bigger agency where I would have done a bit more, you know, just like production type work. After five years or so, I think that was like kind of what made me decide to like kind of open up to Sapient. They they had called me first and that was the first time that I feel like I had gotten like a call from a place that was so much more bigger and so much more established. Like I had gotten calls from like other small agencies or people that were about our size, but it was my first time seeing a place where like they had people like Audi and like Marriott and like McDonald's, like very like large, incredibly established brands were just, you know, at the front face of their portfolio. And I also knew that if I stayed at WDG, I would never be able to kind of make kind of these other types of tactile deliverables I wanted to do. I really wanted to be able to ship an app. I really wanted to make much larger, more complex systems. I wanted to be able to, I also just wanted to try, you know, just seeing what it was like to be on a bigger, different kind of team. I loved my team at WDG. I always credit a lot of my worldly success to just my old boss, Dario's ability just to like help me just one, develop my taste, but also help me just figure out like what questions to ask when I'm trying to solve for a solution. What I love most about him and just, you know, just his, his mentorship was, hey, he really taught me how to think for myself. He was never prescriptive whenever he was trying to help you kind of like along the way trying to solve a solution. He would give you just enough of a riddle that you were like, okay, I'll figure this out on my own. And you could feel proud and feel like it wasn't given to you. It was still something earned. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I get the call for Sapient and, you know, you know, they're a big established brand and I'm just like, okay, uh, I can, I'll make, I'll make the plunge. I'll take this risk. And luckily for me, like one metro stop away so it was uh didn't have to change my commute much as far as the transition over i would say like a lot of it was kind of exactly what i hoped i would be able to do i did some work for barclays i did some work for just like all these like very kind of incredibly different types of engagements that i just never would have been able to do at wdg mostly mm-hmm. just like part of the scale but also because it was just a big large mega consultancy right and i also got to work with just like all these other people who are just very different kinds of experts so i could meet people who were like masters of just like kind of 
finance but also like as it might pertain to like a mobile app and just like all these just different types of strategies who would specialize in certain kinds of kind of areas and topics one of my favorite parts about satan was just how it was able to be such a large company but also just had so many smart people that could just jam into a room i really love just like any kind of moment where we were you're pitching something or we were kind of like on this kind of like more sort of discovery type angle for a project we were basically just the essentially just like kind of this like amazing sort of like design SWAT team of all these kind of different skills that just really kind of come together in a real tight time frame. Was it a big shift in going from the agency world at Publicis to working for Sonos, which is like this private company? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's still something that I'm like very much adjusting to. I haven't worked in-house in-house since AARP when I was an intern. That was like 2012. So that was a full eight years ago. It's funny because I remember thinking there there was a big dramatic shift between agency to agency based on scale because WDG was about 25 or so people when I left and Publicis was about 30,000 or so. They're in 39 countries, about like 30 states They're everywhere. Coming to Sonos was like very, very different because as you might imagine, like since we're, we're all in-house, you know, we, work, we all work together because the, the, the hardware, the services, that is the product, that is how we make money. So what's interesting is just there's a lot more just dependencies kind of between departments, between people. And a lot of like what I've been doing for a lot of my initial kind of onboarding is just meeting people, just putting names to faces and understanding kind of like what their team does and also what their team's impact is on other projects. So a lot of what I'm kind of like ramping up is just kind of understand this kind of this Game of Thrones type character chart between who is in charge, what do they own and how does what they own affect other parts of like different kind of hardware and, and software experiences. And that's the part that's been most fascinating because there is so much different kind of push and pull when you're at uh, not just a software company, but also a company that also ships hardware. So there's so many more kind of moving pieces that can affect one another. And I guess another fun part is just like just like the total just a total volume of designers because I'm so used to being kind of this almost sole practitioner type design person on any project I'm on. I've almost always been the only visual design hand on most projects I've ever done. I think there's maybe been like two or three total where I've ever had any kind of additional assistance. So it's a, that's another thing. It's just it's kind of interesting to see just like how other people can kind of keep a thing going. I, I think I got used to this almost lone wolf aspect. Mm-hmm. At every point in my career, I told myself I was trying to kind of let go of that. And I think this is a, a place where I finally can actually commit to that. Nice. So let's kind of, you know, switch gears here a little bit because we've went through a lot of your career so far. <laughs> I can't answer things simply. Huh? And, uh, and what I want to do is kind of take it back because I want to see where this this drive and this enthusiasm comes from. So you earlier mentioned growing up in Northern Virginia. Tell me what that was like. Like, were you exposed to a lot of art and design growing up? I've always thought about just like the reason why I got design. I've had all sorts of different answers for myself. I would say I was like, you know, like an upper average, you know, I wouldn't call myself an amazing smart badass or whatever. Like I got like, you know, decent honor roll when I was trying. But I remember like, I was always a music themed kid like i liked doing band and orchestra like i liked kind of these creative type things and i remember i was terrible at math i could not stand doing math or anything that were big an answer was very black and white what i did love was english i did advanced english basically from like i don't know third grade until 12 as long as i could i always do whatever was like the absolute like most insane version of english what i loved most about english was i think it was i love the idea of just like doing anything where just like answers weren't ever binary it was always you're you're like when you write a paper or an essay you're as good as your argument and i think that was kind of one of the onuses that kind of got me like really interested in like graphic design later like i saw myself like as a kid as a you know a artist light like i couldn't draw at all but i knew that i loved creativity i knew i liked music i knew i liked to engage with art but i didn't have the means to like express in a way that was good enough to be like oh yeah like i would share this or i think this is actually worth doing so i was very lucky because like in high school we had graphic design courses and the kind of got my first taste for kind of design blood because after two years i um, got to design the course catalog for the school i think every designer has a moment where like they they build something and they see it made real and that's kind of like this turning point right to like see something that just came from nothing it's just some firing from your brain and suddenly it's here it's everywhere it's in everyone's homes and you're just i made that happen and that was just such a just amazing just indescribable moment just to see something just just to know that it was everywhere like even though other people wouldn't think of it as this like they're like oh it's just a catalog whatever's gonna collect dust go in the bin but to me it was my big gig at the time for 11th grade right <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was kind of like the big turning point so after that i just like went to school for graphic design kind of the rest is history and as far as like other things about kind of growing up i always like to mention my aunt she was a fashion designer she was always like a very big just like advocate for creativity 
I wouldn't say anyone in my family ever like was not supportive of creativity or like a creative pursuit or anything. I think it was there probably was like maybe small moments of hesitation, but my mother has uh, always been my greatest supporter. If I told her I had plans to go to the moon, she'd be the first to give me a helmet. So I can always count on her support for everything. Okay. Now you mentioned going to school for graphic design. You went to George Mason University. What was the experience like? Do you feel like it really prepared you once you went out there in the working world as a designer? The state of design school is fascinating. I think it was, I think I also went to school that kind of this, like this sort of turning point in like the whole planet. Cause I remember when I was in school, like, you know, a lot of like programs focus a lot on print and like very kind of physical media type things. But so I went to school from between 09 and 13. And I remember around the tail end, you know, there was all this talk about like, oh, well, if you want to make any money, you have to make, be a web designer. You have to learn Dreamweaver. You have to learn how to code. And I was like, I will do make any decision in my life to not have to close a div. And I've stood by that for the last like nine <laughs> years. I was like, if you're like, right, this, this path involves code. I mean, next, like I will take door number two every single time. But what's funny is like around the tail end of my time, like I think that was when the internet was like really changing. Like I didn't have to learn Flash because around 2012, 2013, responsive web was really starting to really kind of kick into full gear. Like I think the iPhone had been like, it was starting to mature to the point where like we weren't getting mobile dot whatever's worth like reduced version of the website. We were starting to kind of get to this point where people were taking smartphones as like a very serious kind of platform for growth and money and like all sorts of t- different kind of business structures. My first internship was at AARP and this kind of coincides with that a little bit because I remember um. Like I had this kind of print background, but I knew I still wanted to do more digital because I remember I print was cool and all, but like, you know, going to the print shop, going doing things in CMYK, having everything break or not being able to kind of fix things. It was just very frustrating. (laughs) And when I was at AARP, it was kind of around when they were really getting into digital magazines. So doing using things like digital publishing to basically make like an iPad edition of a magazine issue. Mm -hmm. So when I was an intern, I was kind of the initial explorer. So Basically, they would have like a draft of the magazine and I would try to convert or try to figure out, okay, if we want to add some like interactive pieces or like do a little some custom treatments for the iPad or like make this a bit more kind of specialized, how might we do that? What might that look like? How might that manifest? And also like how can we kind of also bring that knowledge to the rest of the team? So around that's like around 2011, 12 or so. And so this is like kind of this turning point, because at this point, like in my college career, we've been very kind of told that like, okay, you have to make make print stuff. You have to like make all sorts of kinds of liberals. You have to learn how to make shirts, book covers, and posters, just like all sorts of stuff. Not necessarily unfocused, but just stuff that like, you know, it was fine, but I I remember I was in junior and just felt like I was just making something new all the time and not necessarily like making like a straight line that was going to kind of build my skill set. Like I felt like I was, every single class just felt like, okay, you're going to make something different, but it's not going to build off of the prior skill you've learned. Hmm. Interesting. So, AARP was kind of like gave me just like this first kind of just this taste for just like building for screens and making a result that was only for screens. So what you saw was what you got in this really just amazing way. There was no more print shops. There's no more lines. There's no more make sure it's done by like 9 a.m. So you can line up at USPS to go to Kinko's. Like it was such a different just I love the immediacy. I love the kind of the feeling in my hands of just scrolling through something like very basic interaction just felt amazing because it was something that I had done like as the, the iPad 1 and 2 were so amazing when they were new, and to do something on that, you know, and around that age just felt so different. I just love the feeling of it, and just, you know, just, I really want to just do more of that. And I think part of that's what also kind of was what inspired me for to go to my next internship, which was uh, ISL. They were kind of this, like, very cool kind of, like, full-service digital marketing agency type company in D.C., they were known for doing all sorts of just really kind of very off the wall, intricate kind of work. Like they would make machines that responded to Foursquare check-ins, all sorts of other things that were just cool integrations with like machinery and hardware and software and apps. I loved the vibe there. But what's funny is um, everyone always assumes that AARP would have been like a, like a slower, more boring, whatever job. But I loved AARP. I thought it was, I think it was like the, the best kind of setup I could have had for kind of framing my success for later. Mm-hmm. I say it most because I felt like uh, <laughs> I don't I don't mean this as a diss to ISL who no longer exists, but I think it was just I think they had a better plan there for just like what to do with an intern, how to kind of nurture an intern and build their skill set and kind of like give them kind of the tools to kind of move to the next thing. Whereas I felt like I was maybe just not quite understood, not having my time kind of being like, you know, prioritized or there was no growth path for me at my second internship. Yeah. And I think that's a tricky thing. That's the thing I always try to remind students is just sometimes like all the super cool, sexy companies that look great from the outside looking in are always like, you know, it's different once you're in there, right? Like it still sounds cool. Cool stuff is going on, but there's not always a guarantee that's going to help you spread your wings or help you get any smarter or stronger. 
So don't discount the things that you think you might not like, because that might be where you you have the greatest opportunity to grow. And now also, while you were at AARP, you got to work with the one and only Diane Holton, who's a friend to the show here. She's also been uh, a guest on the show. Did you work really closely with her as an intern? I did. So there was basically, AARP has two magazines. They have the court world. I don't know how it is nowadays. I don't get a subscription. I'm under 50. But um, <laughs> at the time, I'm pretty sure they still have this. Um, they had the magazine and the bulletin. They were kind of two sort of like subcategories of magazine. The magazine's kind of the big one. The bulletin is kind of this more kind of, I don't know, almost like Reader's Digest kind of situation. And so the Diana was kind of great because, you know, she would check in regularly. She was asking, okay, what are we, what are you up to? Here's what we should do this week. And, you know, she would provide feedback week to week. And she'd also give me like side products and just check in often. And that's kind of what I mean, just kind of going back to just like kind of quality of internship is because I felt like I was actually being one careful, but also like that was, you know, that she was trying to actually set me up to succeed for when I was not at AARP. That's why I always look back at my time at AARP really fondly because I feel like she, I think she cared to see that growth in me over time. And now here we are eight years later. And, you know, it's just so funny just how things kind of turn out. Yeah. So it seemed like, you know, you were pretty, pretty comfortable, well supported in the DMV area. I mean, you were at ARP. Then after that, WDG. After that, Publicis Sapient. I know you also did a little bit of work with AIGA, the DC chapter there as well. Mm hmm. This Sonos experience must have really been something that kind of made you kind of stop and re-examine things, it sounds like. Because that's a big jump at, you know, the stage you're at in your career to be comfortable, established, in a place that you know, with people that you know. And then this other opportunity comes. It's across the country. And it's almost like a like a, a pie in the sky kind of thing. Yeah, I will say, like, there's definitely a bit of idealism that kind of, like, kind of fueled the whole thing. There was this perfect brew of just kind of weirdness. I think it was just one, like, they called me, like, you know, right when I was kind of at this sort of low point mentally, like, I felt I was still trying to kind of, like, kind of refine myself, trying to figure out what do I care about? What matters to me now? Like, what do I want to do as this person who is suddenly kind of this sort of this solo creature here? And, you know, this agency life was still cool, but I was asking myself, I was like, what do I really want to work on? Like, I, I was on a particular project for about eight months around when I was leaving Sapien. And all I'll say about it was like, it was not a thing that like exactly like maybe like want to get up and go to work every day or feel like a great drive or like a great like kind of energy in my voice. It was just for a pack where I was just like, I mean, sure. Like, like every client deserves good design, but it's also hard to like truly give, you know, that 120% for a thing that you like are only doing because you're in it for the money. Mm-hmm. And so the sign was called because it was like, I felt almost, I had suddenly had this chance on the table to do something that was just as much for me as it was for them. And I think that's so incredibly hard to pull off and design to have a topic or a product or just anything you're working on where you feel just as much drive as whoever the founders might be. Music is a very, very near and dear topic to me. So like I grew up on music. I feel like there's so many kind of like turning points in my life where just access to music or just like discovery of different types of artists has just changed my worldview, just made me a better, more worldly, more rounded, more interesting person. And I really just wanted to support that kind of mission. I have this feeling that just, you know, no matter what kind of like amazing design I ever make, I'll never be able to make something that's as good as like a great song. Like I'll never be able to make a design system that makes you cry. But what I can do is help people bridge that gap so they can access things that can give them that feeling of emotion in their heart. So I feel like it's kind of like my way of kind of being the basis in the band, just being support and just driving that mission. A lot of that call was just about what do I really want to do? What do I want people to feel? What do I want kind of for me? Like, how do I want to feel about the work that I'm doing? I came from this background where I, all I want to do was just make something that looked cool and just like make another thing that looked cool and just kind of keep it moving. But you get to a point now, like if you look at my dribble, I've done like over like 60 different clients. Like I've worked on a lot of different things and it gets to a point now where it's cool, it's fun, but it starts to, you start to wonder like, what do I really care about? Like what's actually emotionally resonant with me? What do I really what can I talk about where if no one sees the visual, they still know I care. And mm-hmm. that kind of felt like that this big opportunity for me. Cause I was just like, God, I love the idea of just being in a place where just where a sound experience coming. But what I want is just for everyone just to be just a happier person. And this just felt like a job where basically I feel like a lot of what I'm supposed to do is just almost create happiness, which sounds a little dorky, but what do you think about just the ability to just access your sound, access your music, access your podcast. What I'm trying to do is just give people an object, like an objectively better day whatever it is that they want to engage with. And I just love the idea of it just being this, the mission just feels so pure, but also just so, (laughs) it's so close to the heart. It's hard to not love. Yeah. 
I mean, designers and music tend to have a very special kind of relationship anyway, whether it's us listening to music for inspiration or for productivity, or even just, I think, the opportunities that it allows us to have, whether that's designing a flyer or a CD cover or an album cover or a poster or something like that. There's a lot to be inspired by with music. I've always been interested in that connection between music and design because I feel like it's a really, really powerful one. Like I cut my teeth learning design and Photoshop by designing CD covers. This is back in the day. This is, I don't even know if if kids still do this anymore. They probably don't. But back in the day, there used to be two types of, of, I guess you can call them contests. One of them was called layer tennis. Oh, I know about layer tennis. (laughs) Yeah. So like you start with one thing and then one designer does, and they pass to the other one and they add onto it and it sort of like goes back and forth till it gets to a certain point. And so then that kind of tests your ability to think quickly, to work with something that's unknown to you in a way, but then also somewhat familiar because you did do some work on it. So how do you sort of work around and add to a design without stripping things away? And then the second thing were, they were called blends. I mean, they're essentially just like fan art, essentially. Like you would make blends of, say, an actress and you wanted to make like a computer wallpaper. So you would get three pictures of this actress from like, I don't know, Getty Images or something like that. And then you would cut the actress out and you would arrange them in a very artful way to make a wallpaper or something. And so then that teaches you about like proportion and scale and opacity and color and a number of different things. And you'd enter these contests and you'd see like who would get the best contest. Cause they'd see like, okay, these are the source pictures and this is what you ended up turning it into. So it's almost like this, almost like a, a recipe in a way. Like you have these, it's all, it's like chopped, but for design, you have these like raw yeah. <laughs> basic ingredients that then you have to like come up with something that's like greater than the sum of the parts. Right. You, you know, it's funny. Chop is actually how one of my old bosses, he described design. Cause he would say like, you know, like we would get like a funny client or just like a weird thing. He would just be like, all right, our job here is to take squid and marshmallow and make this into a nice dish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. What it feels like is you're just taking these like amazingly disparate parts. You're trying to take a thing that sounds so unglamorous. You're just like, I'm going to find the jazz. And that was, that was what was so fun about just working at like a marketing type place. So now you're in Santa Barbara. I know you haven't been out much because no one has been out right now. <laughs> Have you in any kind of way been able to link up with like a design community there or, or other designers outside of work? Not just yet. What I want to do is I know that uh, UCSB is nearby, and I feel like they probably have like an art program, or like I know we do sometimes send our people to talk there. I've always been a really huge proponent of like student causes and talking to students and just like you letting them visit visit either my office or me coming to them. So that's something that I like really want to be able to like feel like once I have enough that I feel like I can like really kind of really go all in on. I like would love to be able to start doing that. I care a lot about student causes because I just remember just. What I remember, like, all the misinformation about, like, when I was younger and just, like, having to, like, kind of filter through that and kind of find it on my own. But, too, I think it's just it just helps to have someone kind of come by and just kind of cut through all the noise and tell you, like, straight up as a person who is doing the thing right now, here's actually what got me here. Every time I tell students that, like, I don't know how to code, I've made websites for years, or I don't know how to do, like, XYZ, or I did this instead and that helped me get to XYZ. They're always just like, what? Like they, <laughs> they get their minds just routinely blown. So I, I love to just like, you know, just let them know the way that you might think that it is or the way your teachers might have told you, like there is another way. And I, I like to just disparage the myths or kind of pull back the curtain anytime that I can. Now I have a question here. This is from Chanel James, who has also been on the show. She was episode 325 back mm-hmm. in December. She asked this question, you've adjusted to big changes a couple of times over the last few years, which it definitely sounds like you have. <laughs> when taking on new roles and challenges, how do you prepare for the next step? What advice do you have to someone who is looking for the next new thing? That's an interesting layered one. My first thought is first, I'm going to kind of be a little dorky with you. So um, you ever seen Spider-Verse? Uh-huh. Into the Spider-Verse? Yeah. <laughs> yep. So, you know, there's a, for those who don't know, there's like a great quote in there where there's just like, he asks, how will I know I'm ready? And he says, you never really know. It's a leap of faith. That's all it is. And 
there's so much truth to that statement because anytime you get an offer for an amazing new job far away or even anything that's like even in your own city, you never feel like you're going to be adequately prepared for it. Like I remember thinking, oh, you mean me? You're talking to me? This email's for me? Like there's always like a moment of trying to base kind of turn off the imposter syndrome or assume that like, am I even good enough for this kind of thing? Mm-hmm. So part of it's also just like you have to first, first you got to acknowledge you got the call, you got the response, they're interested. You have to first, you kind of, you have to believe in your heart that you're actually worth the trouble and kind of worth pursuing and worth investing in. And that's a hard thing to kind of sometimes believe because every time you do anything wrong, all you do is assume everyone else sees it. So one, you got to see yourself in the thing. Uh, as far as like preparing for it and just kind of like mentally getting through it, it's interesting because I try to remember because it's like every time I transition to any of these like major new jobs, it's never a one-to-one. I don't just like do what I did two weeks before just somewhere else. There's always going to be this amazing learning curve. And I think it's just about just like be willing to ask questions, be willing to kind of be wrong, like be willing to kind of leave your ego somewhere else for a while or a very long time, preferably, and just, you know, be willing to kind of work with people and just ask questions and just be kind of vulnerable to needing to ask for help or being able to say like, oh, you know, I'm not super sure, but I want to be better. I want to be useful. I want to be in service of something, but I don't always know the best way to do it. I think that one of my kind of my greatest flaws throughout my whole career, honestly, is that I think I had a kind of a paralyzing fear of asking for help sometimes, probably when I needed it most. I think that I had this sort of worry that if I asked for help, that I would be seen as this person who wasn't an expert, didn't understand what was going on, didn't, you know, maybe shouldn't have been the person tasked for the thing. But what I found, especially at SAS, we have this amazing culture of just being willing to ask for help, being willing to admit that you're wrong and presuming good intent from people who are asking questions or doing anything. Back when I was at agencies, I often felt that if I asked for help or asked a question, that I was going to basically poke a hole in kind of whatever kind of sense of rank or stature that I was trying to kind of prop up for myself. And I feel like I'm I'm trying to chip away at that just like every single year, every single interaction. I'm trying to just to be more willing to be wrong, be more willing to let people know that if I am wrong, I want you to let me know and I want us to be able to work on it together so that you don't think I'm trying to be wrong and loud. I would rather be wrong than right together. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it's about just all communication, because if you get the call, you are already a good enough designer, but you also have to be a good enough person. That's usually the hard, the thing that we don't always kind of focus in on. What is it that keeps you motivated and inspired these days? Oh, boy. So many things. It's like I love just all sorts of kinds of me. Like I'm a big movie nerd. I'm a big music nerd. I love curating my music. I love sneakers. I love games. I love so many just different types of just kind of entertainment art and media and just like loving to kind of just see all these kind of wild different weird aesthetics one of the hardest parts about moving here is there's no amc out here so it's really hard to be a movie nerd out here (laughs) so so hard um so what i love about just like all these kind of different kind of mediums like if you like go outside if you go to museums you go to malls you just look at a lot of stuff you see so many different kinds of just like styles and tastes and just ways that things get done and all these like really strange ways that tends to kind of like leak its way back into your design sensibilities I think that one of the things that's kind of made me sort of versatile as a designer is just not minding looking at stuff or going places that I feel like I wouldn't ordinarily choose to. Like, so if someone's like, oh, let's go to the mall, just window shop. You'll see so many different typographic treatments at the mall. If you play games, there are so many ways to kind of like deconstruct a UI and think of it for a different application. If you like, like shoes, there are so many wild color schemes that should not be possible that totally work. Looking at you, Yeezy Wave Runners. Um, (laughs) So a lot of of what I'm thinking about is just like, how can I just, infuse just what i'm seeing daily or like what i just like to do for myself but how can i kind of repurpose that in the frame of like okay if i were trying to work this back into a design like how might this change my approach for something no matter how like small or big this thing is yeah what do you like to do in your non-work time you know, I actually minored in computer game design. So originally, okay. I, yeah, I, I should have mentioned that. It's always like, <laughs> it's always a little thing that just like kind of tucks in because I never did much with it. So I minored in game design. So every time you ask a recommendation, it has to be a 90 minute conversation. Um, <laughs> one of those. So I love gaming. I uh, tried to do, try to like start streaming. I would like to start a podcast, most because I love, like, as you can probably tell, I'm a big talker. I could just go forever. So I tried to figure out how to kind of merge that love of just like just chitter chatter into something. I got a friend, I got a friend or two who's like, oh, maybe we'll start some form of podcast. We'll just do a little round table kind of thing. I try to be much more of an outdoorsy person out here, uh, out east in DC. It's not that fun to own a bike because the only place you're going to go to Target or is to get hit by a car. But <laughs> over here, it's, <laughs> it's very different because out here it's, so amazingly picturesque and beautiful out here like you can get to the ocean in like five minutes there's flowers and lavender everywhere it's just everything smells beautiful so it's just 
amazing to hike and bike and just be present and outside. And I'm really looking forward to just like just being this kind of different, more kind of suntanned version of myself once things settle down. I want to talk some more about this gaming because right now I feel like as we're recording this, it's April 6th. Yes. We're kind of in the middle of like a big dry spell. Well, no, actually, I was going to say we're kind of in the middle of a good bit of games right now. Oh, I mean, man. well, I guess it depends on what systems you're playing. What what systems do you have? Everything. <laughs> okay, so you have a Switch. I have a Switch, yeah. PS4. Yep. You got an Xbox One. PC. You don't even need the Xbox if you got a PC. But <laughs> okay. But, yeah, real talk. <laughs> it is what it is. Windows 10, you know. But I feel like we kind of go with these like amazing weird ebbs and flows with games. I can get like real dorky about this, but um, <laughs> just, but like we're uh, kind of in a good time for games. I, mean, I hate to say because of the pandemic, but like oh, people yeah. are at home and they want entertainment. Movies aren't out because movie theaters are closed and production is shut down. There's no new television shows unless you use quibi which i don't think i don't know if by the time this episode comes out people will still be using quibi but Mm -hmm. like there's not a lot of new stuff and so a lot of Mm -hmm. people i think right around the time animal crossing new horizons came out yeah (laughs) everyone was like yes a distraction (laughs) from the world (laughs) see what's funny is like i um one of my my favorite types of games are rhythm games once again it's just infusing that love of music i Uh love uh i oftentimes i'm the type that generally plays games to be challenged and to like almost like just have like a hard time i think i I love that feeling of like achievement from like kind of overcoming i like relaxing things also but i think like the ones that i like look back with like my most vivid memories of are usually things that were that were hard i think a lot of that also kind of tends to temper your brain too to being like you know if something doesn't go right your way if you're used to getting your your ass kicked like 80 times in a row you're like yeah whatever like so a certain way i gotta make a hot take here just say that i think dark souls has made me like you know a a nicer softer designer (laughs) okay you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> so for all the nerds on the podcast, give it a whirl. <laughs> I saw from looking at your Instagram that you beat Persona 5. Oh my god, it's so long. It's 106 hours. Honestly, real talk, I think Persona 5 has some of the most amazing graph design ever put into a video game. Agreed. Like, I agree. Like, it's, it's galaxy brain. Like It's like, it blew my mind. I cannot believe the... The the things that they were able to pull off, the transitions they were able to do, just like the things they did with typography and scale and shape and color, absolutely just it's it, it's it's so hard to describe. Like, I'm like <laughs> I want to get all lit up about this. No, they just, they I really can't. they really stepped it up from Persona Four. I mean, Personas Three and Four kind of kept a very similar sort of style. I would say I think Four was very very mm-hmm. much more colorful because it was just themed yellow and stuff, but. Like, they really stepped it up for five. Five is just like so kinetic. Like, there's so much energy in the design. That's also part of the reason why I feel like video games are like a very kind of underrated place to get UI and like design inspiration. Oh, absolutely. A lot of people think of games as just like Call of Duty or like very mainstream ones that are commercial, right? But games oftentimes have to solve very, really like interesting kind of like UI problems. And they also have to do it without without a mouse. So they have to do all these different things to kind of teach a player things sometimes really extreme or advanced or multi-layered concepts but also sometimes all these kind of different items like how's like the ui for a team look how are you communicating things to the player how are you like showing data and information on something that's like also very busy on the rest of the screen there's so many like answer so many different kinds of like ux and ui challenges that are happening in games that i feel like just get totally thrown into the radar because people see it as this like you know this is like this this hobby whatever blah 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 like they don't understand kind of like the level of intricacy that goes into some of these things mm-hmm. but a lot of times if you were like man we need a team page my first question my first thing to like be to look for inspiration it wouldn't just be look at other team pages on dribble it would just be like okay how have games solved this how have they handled like different kind of counts for like a certain amount of like units that they need to show on screen if you have like a dashboard like rts's or like strategy games how are they showing just like large chunks of information that needs to be like readily viewable like mm-hmm. how are all these like very different, just very like real challenges that actually impact experience are being handled in games and have been handled for a long time. And as well, some of them are also done in a really, really visually amazing way, a la Persona 5. So yeah. I think it's another part of just like trying to find like finding inspiration in the things that you love and just figuring out how to basically like how to pick and choose where to pull them back into the things that you are doing as well. Mm. Do you plan on playing Persona 5 Royal? Oh, absolutely. Um, right now, I, absolutely. It's like 106 hours, whatever. I mean, we're we're in the time of Rona. Of course I'm good. <laughs> like, but but for, first, I got to beat, uh, God, I need to beat Doom Eternal first. That should be a nice short one. Like, 
what else on my backlog? Astral Chain. Like, typically, I, I love like narrative and like very story driven games. A lot of things I've like learned from like story driven games is going to sound like a funny kind of like agency tangent, but one of the most important things I learned from Agency World was how to tell a compelling story. And if you like play a lot of games with compelling stories that can actually get you to like you know tear up or feel a certain way really quickly, that's uh-huh. what a good that's what a good pitch deck is all about. Which sounds like like a sounds like a tangent, but like roll up here for a second. So it's like you know when you're doing a big pitch, like someone has like a has, let's say forty million dollars to spend, how are you going to convince them? How are you going to make them feel in their hearts that they should feel a certain way and that you were the right choice? And usually you're going to tell a very well-crafted, but also a convincing story, right? It's not about just laying about a bunch of facts. You can't just shovel out a bunch of stats. you got to present them in a way, in an order, in a line where they believe it, but they also feel emotionally resonant with it. And I feel like when you think of it, kind of the story beats of like certain games that are like, you know, big deals for stories. So your Last of Us, your Shadow of the Colossus, your God of War 2018s, like your really big just ones with like narratively strong. Mm-hmm. What are they doing right? What order are they doing in that? And like, how might you kind of think about the way those beats are handled, both like majorly or softly, to like also like how to change how you tell a compelling story? Because half of why I think I got the job at Sanus was I feel like when I interviewed, I told a very compelling story when I interviewed. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, because like a little bit about that, I'll, I'll I'll go back to this. But I remember when I was interviewing, like I I didn't even show work for like the first like twenty five minutes. Yeah, I know, right? So that sounds weird, right? Like, you know, first, like, third, whatever, of the interview, like, first I wanted to kind of introduce, I felt like it was weird to basically jump in and just be like, hello, thanks for meeting me, here's the work that you probably already saw online. No, like, seemed weird. Um, just, so instead, what I tried to do was, I was like, I was gonna, how am I going to kind of build this narrative upwards? So it's a little bit about me, like, what motivates me? What do I like? What am I to the company? What is the company's mission to me? And how can I, how can I prove this in a way that makes you also know that I'm not just, like, just making it up? So I had a really great slide where... In 2017, I bought my mother two play ones, and I showed the video of her pulling them open. Mm-hmm. And that was a that was a muddy moment. That was a narrative moment where they were like, "Oh, this guy!" <laughs> <laughs> like that was them thinking this guy isn't just like some dude who bought the speaker, just like you know whatever. He's actually a fan. He he believes in the mission. Like things that just kind of like unite you to whatever is going on in that moment, right? Yeah. And like I could have just jumped, and just been like, "Well, my work looks pretty good, I think." Don't you think so? Like I know I could have just been impersonal about it or just basically just pasted in what I would have done for the next agency. But you know, if you tailor it right, storytelling is actually going to be your most powerful argument when you're doing an interview. Okay. So play video games to learn about storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> One question that I'm asking everyone this year—it's kind of the theme of the year—is about the future. You know, we're in 2020. This is, by all intents and purposes, when you think about pop culture and when people talk about the future, it tends to be 2020 and above. I don't know if that's because of ABC's news show or or whatever, but people tend to think of 2020 as like the future. How are you helping to use your design skills to build Mm -hmm. a more equitable future? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, You caught me at a really timely time because if you had asked me that a year ago, I would have been like, probably not at all. But um, but now I think like part of the Sonos mission is our mission is to empower listeners everywhere. And that sounds, you know, it's, it's very broad and that's kind of on purpose because like a lot of what we're trying to, to do here is we're trying to basically give people an amazing listening experience no matter where they might be. Whether you're in your bedroom, your living room, whether you're on your patio or you are on the go, we, we are trying to find a way to basically kind of be with you so that you can enjoy the content that you like, however you like, whenever you like, how you like with whomever services that you like. So a lot of what we're trying to do is we're trying to empower users. We're trying to give them choice. We're trying to give them more freedom, but we're also trying to provide access to things for them. So a lot of what what I see as like one of like the best parts about the job is just Sonos is in this rare position where we can actually really help kind of surface a lot of things to users that they might not have known that they wanted. I mean, this in a like very non-advertising kind of way. When I say this is because a lot of what what, uh, Sonos does is we are kind of this like this amazing hub for a lot of services, right? So you can use like Amazon, Apple Music and Spotify and Deezer and Pandora and Ty- you can use so many different services on our platform. But what's great about that is that it lets you also surface things that maybe you are like adjacent to things that you didn't know you had. For example, like if you love Fleetwood Mac, there is a potential future where if you search up podcast, maybe you'll see the Song Exploder episode about a Fleetwood Mac song. Maybe you'll see an, a book about the artist. Maybe you'll be able to catch more content related. What I love is this idea of just being able to kind of enrich people's experiences with the artists that they love and with the content that they like. What I love is just this idea of just like, how can we just kind of 
give people just greater access to art and entertainment and just media in these ways that it's going to make them just, you know, what it, to do what it did for me to make them just more enriched, more well-rounded, more engaged people with all sorts of different types of media. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? It's 2025. What kind mm-hmm. of work do you want to be doing? What sort of projects do you want to be working on? That sort of stuff. You know, my five-year plan if like right now is, so, well, if I compare like what I would have said like a year ago, I'm just like amazed at just how much these can change. Um, <laughs> so right now my plan is like, I really want to be like in California for a good while, mostly because moving cross country very much sucks. Do not do it. Oh my God. Actually, it's worth it. Do it. <laughs> so <laughs> so moving the pain in the ass. I, I think I, I'm trying to like stay in California for as long as I can, for as long as it's reasonable. Uh-huh. Something that I really love about Sinus is like retention has been, uh, is amazing in the company. Like I have met by people who have been here for like 11, eight, like 16 years. Those are numbers that are unfathomable at an agency, like cannot be. We, it was a constant going away party there. And I'm very excited about just like the path ahead at Sonos, you know, just in terms of just like the roadmap features, products, like everything that we want to do and the kind of that core mission. But five years now, just career wise, like I would love to like figure out just like, you know, what's kind of that path towards, you know, um, creative director or, or trying to be towards like a bit more of this person who essentially empowers a team. Cause like right now I'm, I come from this background where, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to be this kind of individual power user. I'm trying to be this like amazing individual contributor. But what I love about my new boss, he is just so, uh, <laughs> what's the word? He's just like, he's just so, so empathetic and so caring. And I just love that about him. He just has this amazing, just concern and care for people. I really want to be able to get some of that into myself as well. And just be able to just like take that kind of energy and concern and care for people and to use that to, you know, expand a team and also, well, taking like what I've learned th- from design over all the years to make them better designers, but also just make them just better, more, more impassioned people as well. So I'd love to figure out how to just, you know, get work my way up to that stage. Now, if that's a sense or somewhere else, who knows? I, my role to myself was if I was going to make any sort of large shifts, it had to be for something that I really, really, really gave a damn about. And I'm really glad that I landed at this one. Nice. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Sure. You can uh, catch me on Dribble at uh, dribble.com slash rparish. You can see just about everything reasonable I've ever done. Half of why I keep so much stuff up there. So you can just track my development and just see that, you know, you got to it's an uphill battle. If you are new and you don't like what you did, you can see the stuff that I wasn't great at, too. It's a process. So, you know, go from bottom to top. It's a, it's a little journey. I don't do any writing, but I do I do tweet about design sometimes at Randall all day, but it's mostly goofy, goofy gobbledy garbage, so you've been warned. You're welcome to follow me on Apple Music. I listen to a lot of what Pitchfork likes, but except I weed out all the nonsense, so you can uh, <laughs> check what I'm listening to. So that's probably the core of it. I should get into some writing, but maybe we'll have a podcast soon, but that's all for now. All right. Sounds good. Well, Randall Parrish, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show You know, I mentioned this before we started recording that I had spoken with Diane and she gave me this really long description about the work that you've done. I think it actually was a a post or something that you wrote. I want to say it was a post that you wrote Mm -hmm. about how you were just getting things together to go to Sonos. You were about to start out there. And one thing that I saw as I was doing all of my research was that you refer to yourself as a human glitter bomb. (laughs) That's correct. (laughs) And I would say that, you know, just based off of this conversation, it's very clear, like, you have this enthusiasm inside and out, like, not just for the work that you do, but also being able to make a difference in people's lives. So I can see how that would would stick. But I'm once this whole COVID-19 coronavirus quarantine self-isolation lifts, I... I'm really excited to see you get back to work and see what you can do with Sonos. Cause I think like, this is just the beginning for you and I'm really going to be excited to see what you do from here. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I had a total blast with you and believe me, stay in touch. And you know, Sonos discounts for everyone. So send me an email. <laughs> big thanks to randall Parrish, and of course thanks to you for listening you can find out more about randall and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com and of course thanks as always to our sponsors for this episode facebook design and abstract facebook design is a proud sponsor of revision path 
To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like a glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us today at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Our transcripts are provided by Glitch. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.